Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Cole Memo. I'm your host, Cole Preston. If you're listening to this episode and you'd like to watch it, there's a link in the podcast description. You might also find other links that we referenced during the show. Folks, this show is supported uh, by our by listeners like you. So if you'd like to support this show directly, you can go to our Patreon page. I think it's a fair price, $3 a month, and I'm pumping out a lot of content. It's it's It allows you to get it off the wire, as they say in the news industry. So folks, if you'd like to support me, consider doing that at thecolememo.com slash Patreon. If $3 a month is too much for your fancy, I get it. I'm not trying to throw away random cash either. Uh, but if you're able to give this episode a thumbs up or subscribe to my show or share it with your friends, that's like one of the best ways you could really help support, spread the knowledge. Today, I am going to be sitting down with my friend, Phil. Phil, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Hello. I'm fantastic. How are you? Doing great. Just about to be doing better, man. I'm excited to uh, spark up and everything, and uh, it's, it's going to be a good time. So happy Talk new year, by the way. Craft cannabis. I don't think yeah, I talked. Yeah, you're, you're happy new year in February? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't think you've been back on. The last time we did a show together was our uh, 2023 recap. So You're right. You're right. That is true. So yes, so, happy new year. Yeah. So <laughs> anyways, uh, yes, happy new, happy new yearing on uh, February 4th, 2024. Thank you, by the way, for reminding me. I always like to say the date at the top of the show. Folks, if you're all, if you're at all familiar with my work, I, you'll know that I tend to speak about topics as they relate to cannabis consumers. If I'm talking about cannabis, um, as a result kind of found myself in unfamiliar territory when I contacted several cannabis license holders to discuss their experience since being issued a license from the state of Illinois. And I figured, Phil, that uh, business must be going great because uh, cannabis licenses in Illinois are among the most coveted in the nation. Or are they? Right? Um, that's the question I've been wondering lately as I talk to all of these licensees are they all they are cracked up to be um folks i am releasing a story alongside this podcast if you'd like to check it out i will have a link in the episode description i don't think we're going to go through everything in this article today kind of give you the highlights if you will um check out this article though i recently sat down with craft growers to talk about you know, how they're feeling about the market. And as the headline says, craft growers in Illinois are struggling to cultivate their dreams. I leaned into the cheesy headline for all of you. Um, it's a good article and I've got a lot of good background on the article. I think just to start this conversation, Phil, before we start chopping up what the craft growers had to say, um, check out the background, folks. I just, I, I talk about why Illinois is called the most equity centric in the nation. And just to put it shortly, the idea was that we limited the number of licenses to ensure the financial success of all of the licensees. I even have a direct quote from J.B. Pritzker to back that up, as well as some quotes from our cannabis regulation oversight officer. I also share some historical data on the composition of the Illinois cannabis market, which I think is a good place to start today, Phil. Um, in the past, and this is in the first year of the most equitable cannabis market, uh, June 18th, 2020, 
Gronin reported that among the 21 licenses issued, only 10 of those, which were held by six vertically integrated uh, operators, accounted for a staggering 76.8% of the cannabis production originating from Illinois fields and facilities. So in other words, six people, six companies accounted for 76.8% of the production in the market. That was in the first year of legalization. I, I would assume those numbers have changed. I think then. so. Because like, I feel like a lot of those like single license holders and stuff have like expanded a bunch since then. Right. Or people like Revolution or stuff like that. Right. And and I'm even hearing to this day that some of the original license holders are, are may still be working on build outs and stuff. So to your point, mm-hmm. I'm sure they have finished things within the past four years now. And yeah, this number probably looks different. Maybe not six, maybe 10, maybe, I don't know. I'm just throwing out random numbers. I have no idea. Um, I'm guessing it's not a large number though. Well, I did. I mean, there was that other stat recently from like, I don't remember, is it headset that does like analysis of cannabis markets? They said that like the top 10 selling brands in the state are like 68% of the sales or something. Oh, so like those brands could be owned by the same, you know, that could be less than 10 companies, but you would assume like, it's maybe a little more, yeah, not as much supply is coming from just those couple people. Yeah. But I did want to include that, you know, for, for, you know, I feel like it's a good background. It's the only data we've really seen. I, well, I, yeah. I, well, I, I look... remember also seeing recently that like now to this day, like one in four products sold in Illinois is grown in a Cresco facility. Whoa. Where'd you see that? I remember? can't remember exactly. But I, I do remember that. If you find that, definitely send that my way. I got to look at that. That's pretty crazy. Um, I feel like it was probably something from like Benzinga or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, like I say, I I like that as a background because frankly, I've been a consumer for more than uh, four years, which is as long as we've had it quote unquote legal. So let me back that up. What I mean to say is a legal consumer in the state of Illinois. I've had my medical card since I think it was like 2018. So I have a I've seen what this system looked like before adult use is what I'm trying to say and what the shelves looked like more specifically. And today, what I can tell you is that it doesn't appear like much has changed New brands are emerging, and I've personally interacted and sampled products from some of the recently established craft cannabis licensees. But it does seem, as you were saying, Phil, the overall number of new operators steam seems statistically insignificant when compared to the well-established options. In other words, what I'm trying to say is it seems like the operators who already established themselves within the medical cannabis program continue to overwhelmingly dominate shelf space. So, yeah, I thought about uh, I was looking around because I was like, oh, maybe I should go like grab an eighth of one of these craft producers. You know, like, I don't know what I thought it would cost, but it was going to be like forty five dollars, even with my med card. And I was like, hey, forty five dollars for an eighth of weed. No, I don't think <laughs> I don't think they understand that. That's it's not even to try it. It's just I can't enjoy getting high on an eighth that cost me almost 50 bucks. <laughs> right. Not unless it's like the best weed in the world. <laughs> right. Right. 
And the thing is, but I, to... I but I also don't know what that is. Like I'm just not that discerning of a like I don't know. I smoke weed all the time. I don't need to smoke like the best of the best all the time. But you know what's you know? interesting, and, and the the difference between like what I see sold as like high end versus like just like a normal eighty or two hundred dollar ounce in Michigan is like not that different. Right. So what like I even gonna... over in Michigan, I feel like I've usually been disappointed when buying higher end dates. Right, right, right. Yeah, same, same. Um, I was going to ask you, like, I don't mean to take us on too much of a tangent, but would you perhaps try one of those products if you were able to actually smell it beforehand and be like, oh, yeah, I mean, this smells great. You know, If you could, like, fully see it, sure. Yeah. yeah. If it was if it was like thirty dollars, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe even thirty five. But like anything over ten dollars a gram is just a little crazy, right? Like I roll two gram joints. That's a twenty dollar joint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, I, I will just say that time will tell. You know, we can share our anecdotes of what the market looks like from a consumer perspective, but I can say that the real, the full picture should be revealed. Uh, you would think because the State of Illinois is currently conducting a disparity in demand study. Really quick, because it's only like 30 seconds and a lot of people forget what could happen as a result of this disparity in demand study. I think a lot of different things could happen, but let's just watch one of the things that has been stated that that could definitely happen. Um, let's check it out real quick. Hi, uh, Deputy Governor Christian Mitchell. So uh, what this contemplates is that there would not be new large-scale cultivation in the first wave. That is an effort to make sure that as we roll out a, a wave of, cult, of craft grow licenses that you don't see a situation where the large guys crowd out the smaller folks. There would then be a measure uh, after a timed release to look at a demand study and figure out if we in fact need more large-scale cultivation. If that in fact happens, then uh, the appropriate department can make a determination uh, and issue new licenses. Great, thank you. So, just an interesting thing that could come out of that demand study. Um, Almost five years ago. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. That is crazy. Um, time flies. Yeah, I mean, 2019. It's... Anyways, though, um, again, we'll see what these what the numbers look like uh, when when that study comes out and then i think we could more do you know when it's supposed to come out uh i have heard that it should have come out on the 31st um okay so like any day it could come out any day yeah that's what i'm hearing so stay tuned folks um we'll see what that looks like i'm really excited to be able to well because that's always been the log jam that's always been the like thing that the cannabis business association has pointed at as being like well we can't do anything major until we get this demand study done right (laughs) like it's in the law you got to have the demand study Mm -hmm. then you can make changes like it was always it just seemed like such a delay tactic um right for the whole thing yeah no i remember one time when you helped me transcribe a yeah, a clip, and that's what they they referenced was the demand study. It has definitely been something that comes up all the time. So, um, 
Well, let's have a conversation about the difference between co-packing, white labeling, and licensing agreements, shall we, before we break into what the craft cultivators told me. Actually, some of what the craft cultivators told me is in this section. Um, there's a lot of conversations about white labeling and co-packing and, and licensing agreements, uh, especially in the Illinois cannabis industry nowadays, because I think it's like c consumers are really frustrated. So they get really excited when they see like something new pop up on the shelves and then they find out, oh, that's just a licensing agreement, right? So think of your Tyson 2.0, your 93 boys. Uh, I think Arise actually in and of itself, Phil, we learned is a licensing uh, agreement. The company behind all of 93 boys and Arise is Wellness Group Farms. So they do this licensing agreement with, uh, uh, you know, a brand. A Revolution does licensing agreements with Cookies and uh, now with... Heisman for that Rick, what is his last name? Ricky, the guy that. Is it Ricky Williams? Ricky Williams. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say somebody just promoted that partnership. He's the, the, he's the football player, right? Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> so we just dove into licensing agreements because that's where a lot of these conversations starts. But a lot of, you know, I even saw this morning on uh, IL Trees, people talking about white labeling. And I think this is a, uh... you know, I saw that too. And I actually wanted to know more about, cause someone mentioned that it happens all the time in the liquor industry. Yes. Uh, and I was like that, I would love to know more about. I actually just in researching white labeling in and of itself, it sounds like it's just a thing in CPG. So like a lot of lotion, like just think of just random products the reason it's called white labeling is because they would like make the product, but then there'd be a white label for you to stick your brand sticker on. Right. right? Yeah. So it's like, but like, but the idea that like there's, you know, maybe a dozen whiskeys on the shelf in a liquor store and they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they've been made in the same barrel or facility. They're all just branded with a different thing. I, I just, I wasn't, I mean, of course that happens, I guess, but I just had no idea that that was a thing. Yeah. I was, at, and when I was looking into it, I found that you can private label your own spirit or beverage line. So I could just like start, uh, you know, a drink company right now and like source the, yeah, that alcohol. makes sense. Cause I remember I had a friend in the city here who, worked for this brewery that was like a contract brewery mm -hmm. so it was like they like if you started a brewery here in the city and your facility wasn't big enough to meet the demand that was growing you would contract with this company and they would like produce your beer to your standards right like in their space with their staff mm -hmm. interesting now see that sounds and i'm as I said at the beginning of this article, and I haven't said it at the beginning of this episode, so here's my opportunity to now. You just taught me more about some business than – like I'm just not a business person, so a lot of these different nuances and the fact that white labeling is a thing that exists outside of the cannabis industry was something that was new to me you know, through this report. But what I will say is – and maybe when we talk about contract packing – how about we get into it first? What I was about to say is it sounds like maybe that person was either white labeling or contract packing because they sound so close, but they are different. So let's talk about white labeling. So white labeling in the cannabis industry involves a company producing generic cannabis products that another company can brand and then sell as, it, as its own. So think like literally 
they grow the weed and you put it in your bag. You're not doing any processing. You're not making it into another, pro- you're just taking it and putting it into a container with your labeling on it, right? You didn't grow it. You didn't, it's somebody else's and you acquired it. Now, um, as we've just established and I put in here, white labeling is not a unique practice for the cannabis industry. White labeling exists in many industries. Now, I, I've tried to be fair in this, and there was a little bit of a disagreement in the with the craft cultivators on this topic. So this first person comes in pretty heavy, and I was feeling what they were putting down, but then this other person added a little bit of context that I think is helpful. So what the first person that I spoke to said was, the large majority of these craft growers are doing phased build-outs. And so we're just about to dive right into one of the main issues of craft right now. They say, how many of these craft growers are eventually going to be able to cultivate if they're only starting off with processing? It's way cheaper, I think. It takes from the figures I've seen, including my own, maybe about a few million, not including the acquisition of the building. Then you have to get the requisite equipment to begin processing, to fill vapes, pre-rolls, and stuff like that. But then the big issue is, where am I getting the product from? I'm probably getting it from an MSO, which means what? I'm helping them make more money, right? Because I'm just white labeling their stuff. So that was what one person said. And again, after talking to more individuals involved in the space, it sounds like some of what they're mentioning is co-packing. So like filling vapes, for example, like if you're putting it into, it's weird, the line, but it's like when you take a raw input and then you're doing something to assemble the final product product to their specifications, as you said earlier, that's co-packing. Whereas white labeling is you're just taking it, packing it, putting it out. You know what I mean? Like there is a diff. It sounds like there is a difference, but it doesn't sound like the difference is from a layman. It doesn't sound like there's a huge difference, but I I just wanted to be clear that it does seem there's a distinction. Now, here's where context comes in. I felt anybody who's talking about white labeling in Illinois, like it's a negative thing. I don't hold it against them. I just look at it as a result of their limited exposure to more mature markets and how the cannabis industry actually works. Many other areas of the country that have been doing this for decades legally. I'll use this for example, California. Anybody who acts like white labeling is some new thing or negative thing doesn't know anything about the California cannabis market that we all look to as the gold standard, the mecca, the motherland. There are so many growers that many choose not to create brands. They choose to grow for wholesale. An example that they didn't use, but I actually, in preparing for my interview with Charlie, I didn't bring it up, but Cresco did just exit the wholesale part of California, but they're remaining there as a brand. So in other words, they're taking the idea that, hey, we are a valuable enough brand and we know that we can source good materials, that we can stay here as a brand, but it's not like viable for us to grow here, like cultivate. So mm-hmm. um, I just thought that was interesting, the back and forth on that yeah, topic. Yeah, and it's not like, no? you know, I, I know I've seen, I bought white labeled product in Michigan, mm-hmm. like stuff like Viola white labels a bunch of product for... I don't know if they have like multiple brands, but I remember buying one brand called Greenstone Wellness and just seeing it was produced by Viola. So it's, mm. you know, they yeah. were like selling it under this under other brand name to be sold in like, I don't know if it was a social equity dispensary or just like one of his partners who's black and owned the dispensary. It's like a thing to promote black ownership in dispensaries. It's like a group. So Viola grows the weed and like sells it under a different brand name at those yeah. shops, I think. Yeah. 
And I just want to interject with an anecdote that we're both familiar with. Frankly, like some of the places we shop at in Michigan sound like they're vertically integrated because they're avoiding all of this and they like to keep everything under the same roof. So I'm not saying that white labeling isn't prevalent. I'm just wondering if there's like this undertone of business people that are like hunkering down to try to, you know what I mean? Well, and the reason why it's like interesting or an issue to talk about it in Illinois in the context of the craft licenses is because there, I think there was a perception that craft licensees would be growing craft cannabis. Right. <laughs> and it, well, you know, it seems like some of them are, but others are just white labeling because it's obviously like that person said, it's cheaper to get your start that way. Yeah. And I mean, everybody agrees that I will say that all of the craft growers did agree, even though there was some disagreement there, is that the only manageable way, and this is actually the next part in this, so I might even just use my own words, uh, they don't consider white labeling or even co-packing to be a negative uh, practice. To the contrary, they view it as one of the only manageable entry points into the legal cannabis industry in Illinois. While they would prefer to be able to cultivate, process, and infuse their own, they assert that problems stemming from the state's management of this market have forced them to purchase from established licensees instead of working independently as they initially assumed they would be able to. So, um, someone who's conspiracy minded might say it was set up that way. <laughs> right. Right. So co-packing, and I actually have an example that I just inadvertently stumbled upon in the Chillinoy podcast. So I in include a link in this article to it, um, you know, because I figured that uh, some people were white labeling because I have interviewed, but I was wrong. I just want to say that really quick uh, with regard to this context that I'm talking about. Um, upon further research on this topic and everything else, like it seems that I'm I'm wrong. Uh because I asked them on the podcast, which if you click on that, it goes to the direct timestamp where I ask, you know, are you growing your own? Because I see you've got your own products. And they say, well, we're sourcing high import materials from companies, but we're like assembling it, manufacturing it, it something to that effect. In our, again, you can click this link, folks, and, and watch the timestamp. Um, but again, I if as a layman, I would have told you, well, that's white labeling. But now that I've done more research into this topic, it's like sounds more like contract packing because what contract packing is, it's a scenario where a company or brand, the client, works with another company, the co-packer. So in this case, Helios Labs. And for example, I'm just going to use Bloom Vapes. That's the client. So the co-packer produce packs and sometimes distributes the products. In Illinois, they they do distribute the product. Um, this arrangement is more collaborative than white labeling and often involves the client's proprietary formula, packaging design, and sometimes materials. So I think in the case of Bloom, actually, I've never tried them, but I'm pretty sure they send them like they probably did the R&D on the vape device. So they just send it to like Helios and they just fill the fuckers up and send them out. You know what I mean? So they didn't have to do all this research on a vape device. They were able to kind of like partner um, is why I assume this is like a really viable idea. And this actually gets back to something that I wanted to talk to you about, Phil. You brought it up over the sh uh, show. You know, some of these people are 
you said um, some of these people are probably just doing this because like, how are you going to get money in? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's the, be- I mean, it's better to have any money coming in than no money. <laughs> right. And I told you I wanted to add to that because this is something I didn't think about that. And this is kind of in this quote here. Uh, one of the craft growers I spoke to said, if you look at the projections of a craft cultivation, whether you're going for 5,000 or 14,000, like let's say you're tapped out, let's say everything worked out and you got that 14,000. One of the things that we realize is that you, you, you're able to do more than just grow. So why wouldn't we you do everything our license allows us to do? And this is something I've learned from a lot of different craft growers. Like you can actually some people argue the infuser licenses are worthless. You might as well just get a craft grow license because craft grow licenses lets you do everything an infuser license can do. Like you can infuse your own product. You can do all that on site. So to their point, it's like, yeah, why not have a 14,000 square foot canopy, but then have a whole other warehouse where you're producing, packing, whipping up different branded products because you got the floor space. Let's make more money. Yeah. I mean that, that makes total sense. Like, because that way you're not limited. Right. You know, you're not so limited in scale or like what if, I mean, there's like, it'd be limitless. The, the potential you'd have to grow your white labeling. From what I understand. Exactly. Very- like I, I asked, I think it was in that conversation I had with my last conversation that I had with David Lakeman on, on, I think it was the Chilinois podcast. I don't know at this point, but the last conversation, if you folks go back, it has to do with outdoor cultivation. Um, and actually that article is mentioned later in this. So maybe I can reference that as well. But, um, he did, I asked like, what is the top cultivation, the canopy size? And from what I understand, 14,000 for the, in the case of craft growers or 210,000 in the case of adult use, Let's call them super licenses. That's just flowering canopy. You can have as much as you want vegetative. You can as much as you want production, you know, make it a fucking mall. (laughs) I don't know. That's from what I understand. I don't know that I, I don't know that I understood that. Yeah. So like, like a craft grow could buy a, could move into the old post office downtown and just like fill that with, you know, like if they, grew to some huge scale, but all you need is that one license to do that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. It makes me a little suspicious of like people who haven't been able to like raise funds or get their craft licenses off the ground at all. It's like, were they just not creative? Yeah. To explore these like licensing agreements and white labeling opportunities. And I don't know. So the last thing and we well, already talked just because you would you would imagine some people that want a license just have no business experience or you that's, know <laughs> yeah and that's one of the quotes that you uh, and I discussed before we got on the show makes you wonder sometimes you know like the idea of a perceived value of a license like what are you talking about have you been in business? I've not been in business, but I would never take anything for granted. Like I know things don't just hold their value. You know what I'm saying? Oh, right. Yeah. Like just expecting to get some value that people put on it at one point, like a year or two or three ago. Right. And right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a craft cultivator that I actually grabbed a quote from uh, since you had viewed this article that added 
kind of critiqued that perspective. So I think you'll like what they have to say. They sound like they're a stronger operator. Just anecdote, just my opinion there. Um, we already talked about licensing agreements, so I'm going to kind of breeze over it. But it's the idea that, uh, you know, a company, the licensor can grant permission to another company, the licensee, to use its brand name, trademarks and proprietary knowledge or technology to produce market and sell products. Um, some people say, you know, like if you couldn't get a license, if you're famous enough, well, just like if you couldn't get a literal license, if you're famous enough, just get into the industry with a licensing agreement, right? Make your Wolfrid or Wilfred uh, pre-rolls, right? I think he's the guy from FedEx, FedEx, FX, I meant to say, uh, old TV show. And, you know, Tyson 2.0, Cookies, those are other examples of licensing agreements. Let's get into what the craft cultivators have to say. Um, basically, one of the first points, and I led with this uh, because, again, I kind of approach this from a consumer standpoint. And, I, I, you know, in Illinois, medical cannabis patients are not required to pay adult use taxes on their products, something that some see as a crucial benefit because they're, the products are expensive enough. So if you get a little break, that's... They don't pay, they don't pay sales tax either. Oh. Yeah. You pay like you pay like I think the what medication or food is taxed at something like that. Yeah, you probably don't even get a county tax. I'm, I'm curious, do you get a county tax? Cuz it's cuz the total is like 2% or something like that. Right. I don't know what exactly that tax is, but it's definitely lower than sales tax. Hmm. So that that's why me... actually like if the medical like if you could just buy any from any rec store at the medical tax rate like I feel like you would see an, a, a boost in the number of people who have cards. You know, I think because what you still have to produce, like we're saying here, like you can't buy these craft products because they're produced with like a rec license. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't totally understand it. And that's why I like. Well, because do you know if here in Illinois, because I know in Michigan, like if you were going to grow medical and mm -hmm. you were going to go grow rec, they're grown with two different licenses. So like right. you're growing the plant and it's like tagged as a medical plant. Right. So like over there, you've just seen all the medical product disappear because there's no incentive to produce for that market mainly because the rec market's so much bigger. Mm -hmm. Is that the same here in Illinois? From what I understand, no, but the answer is nuanced. So I'm about to cover some of it, but this is actually something that's not covered in my article that you just made me think of. Like, for example, because Justine used to work at a dispensary, so she was able to tell me, and you can actually call any – in this investigation that I link here, we actually do talk about this subject. Uh, it's the idea of whether or not you can purchase these products at the, this ta at the medical tax rate. And sorry, to get to your question, um, let's say you go to a medical cannabis dispensary, right, and you see something on the adult use menu that is not on the medical menu. If it is one of the original licensees, you can purchase that product. Even if it's on the adult menu, they can they can bring it over and bio track to make it medical. And and I've like New Era specifically told me that they could do this, but they said they can't do that at all with the craft cultivated products. That when they try to ring the person out, they get an error message. And I actually share it in this report what error message they get. Um so they've like tried um, 
but yeah. Well, because just looking at it, okay, so this IC Collective is one of the craft producers, right? Mm -hmm. So they do have that on, like if I look at Windy City Posen, like one of the dispensaries that's close to me down here, that is on their medical menu and you can buy it as a med patient. So my guess is what they're doing, and this is my second asterisk, some stores or brands are offering deals to offset the adult use tax because I've just been told, like I've called many and I, I'll have to call because I've not called them specifically, but. But that would, that would mean that it's still like interchangeable then. Right. Technically they ring you out as an adult use transaction. They don't mark it against your, uh medical allotment like if you went and did that now i think be interesting i want to give you 45 bucks so you can do it for science <laughs> well because just looking at it like on like just at, on their checkout page it's just like yeah the you know it's like normally 54 dollars or something like that and it's marked down 20 percent, but that's not like uh, to offset and you know the tax that's showing up is still like a dollar interesting yeah see when i went to like try this from new era i it was on the menu but then they like explain the situation and it, it just didn't happen to be one of the brands that because i think it for a while at the beginning there it was just a few brands so i don't know if ic collective is doing it but yeah it just because i thought it is, was more i thought it was more what you sold it to the dispensary as like i thought a craft producer like you 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 could buy it medically, right? But you can buy it medically here because IC Collective sold it to Windy City Posen as medical cannabis. Right. That could that could that was be. that was my understanding of how it was. Mm -hmm. Like, because I thought I heard the CROO talk about that at one point. That was kind of the implication I took from what she said. Yeah, I hope that's the case because then that'll be that'll be the answer. But like I say, there still lies that issue that at least new era confirmed with me that they told me anything on their menu they can move over even if it's tagged as rec that there is a specific section of the law that medical if you go to a medical dispensary you can get whatever you want at the medical tax rate and so they move it over and they're telling me that some products they can't you know what i mean interesting yeah yeah so that's well, and maybe it's that was weird. part of the reason they wanted to move to BioTrack or Metric. Metric, yeah, I've heard that 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 could be fixed with Metric. That it is an issue with BioTrack. That it is a, a an issue with BioTrack. And yeah, um, I think we we had talked about that before too. Yeah. So, but if you want to take a deep look, folks, that's this link right here that I've got my mouse on. It kind of dives into different things I had found at the time. And uh, again, there's just there's a few asterisks to that setting, but this uh, topic, but the bottom line is craft growers say that they're missing out on a piece of the market. And one of the quotes I got is uh, the multi-state operators love it. They've got the entire medical market to themselves. Um, so, and I think, yeah, to your point, if, if more people could get their medical card, considering some of the benefits, like you can hop the line and you don't have to pay taxes. I think they would. It's just that there are only 55 in the state. And so it's like not see like, I don't know, maybe some people don't even know there's a medical program, you know, still worth, still worth getting your card just for those at home possession limits. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
definitely folks consider that. So the next topic is one that I found a bit boring, I'll be honest, but um, I wanted to report on it because it is a consistency I heard through all of the craft growers I spoke to. So basically they've all had issues with funding, which is a pretty nuanced topic. I mean, you get funding from different sources, but this is what I'm talking about here is their experience with applying for loans from Good Tree Capital and Credit Union One, which were recommended by the state. And in fact, if you go to the state's website right now, they talk about these programs and um, and yeah, they re- they were recommended. So they told me they were required to pay a $1,000 application fee and were also required to pay a monthly fee while waiting for the state's participation loan from the Pritzker administration through the Illinois Department of Commerce and Opportunity, DCEO for short. Um, but of course, you know, this program, we can take a just a quick reminder. It's for people that were supposed to have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. So the licensees describe encountering challenges as the lenders required personal guarantees and credit checks, posing difficulties for disproportionately impacted individuals, poor credit or limited capital. These hurdles exacerbated their struggle to secure capital, they tell me. Um, they also describe facing like what they would call a form of discrimination. They hesitated to completely call that. And then they kind of like, no, I mean, in some ways we do feel we're discriminated against because of our status as a state licensed cannabis business. Like if you start talking about loans, like as soon as it's made aware that you're a state licensed cannabis business, all of a sudden interest rates go up um, all of a sudden. Well, and you know, people like chart, it's like uh when people have weddings, they call it like the wedding tax. Like everything you do for a wedding costs like three times as much as it would for like normal life. <laughs> it's like that's what the cannabis industry faces too. Is like they'll charge you rent that's way higher. Yeah. Like anything you're buying for the place, they'll try to charge you more because you're a cannabis business. Yeah, and they call it the marijuana markup. So mm-hmm. the wedding tax, the marijuana markup. There you go. Um, now, I'm trying to find more research, and I did reach out to this Alex Nitkin from IllinoisAnswers.org, but it is the weekend, so not heard back just yet, um, but maybe I'll hear back. He, he does can... a lot of uh, cannabis reporting. I see his name a lot. Yeah, and if I could give him a quick shout out, like I personally, you know, I'm doing my best on covering this topic, but he has covered this topic in depth. So this article that I link here is his last one. And uh, definitely check out his reporting. It's good. Probably much better than mine. I'm doing, but I'm doing my best here. So what I tried to cite by him here is that like, there's still at least in 2021, and based on his reporting last year and in the fall, there was like over 10 million. And I planned. I was thinking about adding this fill before we get to some of these quotes here. But you know what's funny is craft. Some craft cultivators I spoke to said, yeah, there's 10 million in the CBD fund, but there's also uh, like they, I can't remember what the number is. I'm not going to make one up, but in the medical, the compassionate fund, I was like, well, why'd you bring that up? And well, because in the past, uh, let me pull up that article from Illinois news joint. How much is in there? I think it was like 72 million, but I don't want to, that's the thing. Don't quote oh, me okay. folks. Well, I know they took 40. I thought that was, uh, all of it. <laughs> right. So that's, that's why. So when craft growers say, well, there's also money just kind of floating around there from the medical cannabis fund. Yeah. So in the past, as reported by Illinois News Joint, the 
they have transferred money from that fund to the CBD fund, the Cannabis Business Development Fund. Now, I was pretty honest with the craft cultivators I spoke to and about how I felt on it. Um, it's just interesting for folks, if you're wondering like why Phil and I are even talking about this, it's because in the past, certain legislators, uh, specifically Representative Bob Morgan has said like, hey, this fund was never meant to be like, this program was never meant to be profitable and there's just this money sitting here. And so this is your money and we, uh, I'm working on this bill and we can get you kind of like a stimulus, if you will, give you your money back. Uh, after all, it is your money. And uh, that's never happened, um, but they have taken money from that fund and used it to, well, put into the Cannabis Business Development Fund. So it's money from patients, and uh, I'll just, that's what I think about it. Phil, you got anything to add before we move on to? Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not good optics. Well, because partially too, like they were accruing so much money in that fund because it really didn't cost very much to run the program. And the cost of the card was only ever supposed to cover the, like, like to maintain the cost of running the program. So it's like, if you're still accruing money, maybe you can lower those fees even more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like undoubtedly more people would get their card if it cost, you know, what, 50 bucks for a three-year card or something like that. Right. I think now what it's 125, but mm -hmm. you usually can't get your normal physician to write you a recommendation. So you have to pay someone else like a hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. Cause physicians, even a good physician, like, uh, like my physician helped me, but it's like a, as I told Dr. Lee, when they were having issues with that portal for physicians, you like, Either you're a medical marijuana doctor or you're just a regular doctor. And like, if you're just a regular doctor, you may not want to just like spend a bunch of time fucking around on the medical cannabis portal when it's a piece of shit. You might want to just help yeah. like all yeah, your other patients. True. But if you're a medical marijuana doctor, like you're going to take the time to like learn the portal, its quirks, and you're going to contact the state because it's your fucking well, job. Well, and it's like, you know? you know, last time I renewed my card, it was like this whole debacle because they had the people had input my name wrong. Mm. So it wasn't like matching up, but I had to like, you know, contact them a bunch of times, get them to talk to the state. It was like, yeah. Yeah. Like your normal physician is probably not going to want to deal with that. Cause they don't have to like, think about how they normally write a prescription. They just write that shit and you go to Walgreens and they don't have to fucking deal with you anymore. I did hear about someone going to like a regular nurse practitioner and being able to use their insurance to do that. That's that's cool. Yeah, I've I've heard about that here. And they there. broadened like they broadened the category of who can right give the recommendations. Right. Yeah, I think it's like LPNs and stuff now. But anyways, um, just to close out the loop on funding again, this is more about the DCEO. I've got a bunch of quotes and folks, you can. I'm not going to read all of these, but I'm going to read some of them that stood out to me. Um, you know, definitely check out the article once again. DCEO is frankly oh, also fair. just one more thing. One more thing about the yeah. money that medical cannabis fund money. And I know that like the advocacy groups have made it like their top priority for med patients to be able to get their tax rate at every dispensary. <laughs> so at least like, 
Yeah, like at least if you're going to take that 40 million and give it to start these new social equity rec dispensaries, you got to open those up to med patients because technically we paid for part of it. <laughs> that's a good point, Phil. Yeah, thank you for, thank you. Yeah, that's well said. I'm going to remember that one. And, and we should that. use that argument to our legislators. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just going to say, folks, you remember that too, because that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Well, um, I liked this comment here because it's, it's honest, but also fair. DCEO is frankly failing to respond. They won't tell us when they're going to roll it out, the funding, who's going to be eligible and how much. In defense of those staffers at DCEO, they're not being informed by their superiors either. They don't have the answers. But in our business, we need answers. Even if the answers know that we won't receive loans from them, we need to know. Um, I thought this one is another powerful one. The legislature. The legislature and the governor, as I mentioned, can stand in front of the cameras and proudly proclaim they've created this program. They can proudly proclaim that DCEO has given has a loan program and they've given out eight loans. I don't know if that's an exact number. It's just a quote from them. Uh, they've given just enough to give window dressing to this craft grow market, but most craft growers you talk to aren't personally that aren't personally wealthy are not doing well. This is not a successful program. We don't know the future. We're anxious. I own a building and we need build out money. This is crazy. The only way we're going to get started is to, you know, sell our equity. That was not the intent of the program. And then this has some numbers. I don't know if these are I exact numbers. Kind of, but... I thought that kind of was the intent of the program, at least when they talked about it in the beginning. You like, I a... thought part of it was like, oh, yeah, and these licenses will be worth a bunch of money. So like, you know, you can sell off a portion of it for startup funds. I mean, I thought I remembered hearing that way back. I mean, and I know that they made it so like you have to have your dispensary up and running to like sell any portion of that license. So it was like, I I just never really understood that. Yeah. Because I yeah. remember like the state saying that when they first proposed like the license caps to promote social equity and because it was right. like, you'll be able to attract investors if the licenses are limited. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it, what I remember to your point is that it was, it's like either way, you're going to get intergenerational wealth. So it's like, if it's not through right. selling weed at a high price, it's that you're going to flip your license. Like they were very blunt about that. You remember like some people like defended that. They're like, why the fuck wouldn't I be able to sell my license? You know? Well, right. Yeah. So um, that's what I remember. Yeah, I mean, like, inherently, you should be able to sell a license if you have it. Right. I mean, yeah. Um, I thought this was interesting. I almost breezed over it, but they say, I don't want free money. Keep in mind, we're not asking for grants. I want a loan. I look forward to paying that back. But, you know, the bottom feeders and the sharks out there, they want 13 to 18% to borrow money. I'm just paying a higher percentage rate on my building because cannabis may be in there in the future. It's just not right. Well, and I remember hearing too, because they have made some of these grants. Like you don't have to pay it back. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem with that is then you limit the potential to fund people in the future. Because mm -hmm. if you if these are like just no interest loans or whatever, or very low interest loans, that money is then going back into this fund and it can be given out to someone else after you've paid it back. Yeah. If it's, a, if it's a grant, then you're just getting that money and that's yeah. less money for right. people down the line. That's interesting. Huh. I didn't even think about it that way. So yeah, that adds to that quote. Like I, 
I just thought it was interesting that they made it clear, like, we're not asking for free money. We're just asking for a little bit of help, you know? Um, one last thought I have on these is just like, again, it's this idea that some of the people I talked to, what happened was they went to these credit unions or capital, whatever the fuck they're called, Good Tree Credit Union and Good Tree or Credit Union One and Good Tree Capital, sorry. And when they started evaluating the team members, they're like, well, you guys, you don't have a lot of credit and stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, we're yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we're disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Like that's what kind of happens, you know? So, um, sometimes. Well, they, yeah. Like no, no average person is going to be able to go out there and get like a multi-million dollar loan just from a bank. Right. <laughs> right. So they say it was presented as like a 50, 50 loan, but if the, so the state would match the loan, but if the credit union gives you a loan of $0, then that's what the state matches you at, you know? And yeah. Yeah. So, um, just kind of interesting. So this next one, outdoor cultivation actually came up. One of the cultivators brought it up. It's about lack of consistency with state regulators. And just to kind of keep it short, it just sounds like when when somebody comes to your craft cultivator, depending on who it is, like it's just a different experience. And we've heard this time and time again through the show. Uh, people have spoke about this on the record, but th this is more people kind of talking about just some of the ridiculous things like they have to add a wall or a ceiling or extra cam cameras and things that just seem oftentimes nonsensical. Um, there's also it's just like just cause, because there's so many different departments like involved. Well, so like it, people from one department come in and say one thing. Thank you for asking that, because, no, it sounds like it's the Illinois Department of Agriculture. So oh. sorry to be very clear about it, but <laughs> folks, it sounds like the Illinois. Here Department I'm trying to think of excuses for the state. <laughs> so, so what I've heard, you know, like some things, like it just, yeah, depending on who you get from the Illinois Department of Agriculture, it's inconsistent. So, like, hopefully you get the same guy because then it's going to be consistent. But the point is, it doesn't sound like that happens. Like a different person shows up, and then he's got like different things he's looking at. And it's like, but hold on, what's going on here? Some even described, and this isn't in this report, so here's the benefit of watching this. Some described situations where like the Illinois Department of Agriculture person is here and there's another person that's responsible. Like they've got a scope for their inspection that has nothing to do with the Illinois Department of Agriculture. And the Illinois Department of Agriculture will overstep their bounds and say, no, you need to, for example, install this fire safety thing. And the, the fire marshal sitting there like, I'm the fire marshal. I call the fire stuff. And they're like, no, no. And so there's like this who's who's in charge thing going on. Um, yeah. Interesting stuff. But you know, again, this is kind of time and time again. Um I thought this was actually a pretty fair quote from somebody who was you know, pretty upset by this because they sounded like they were impacted by it. Some of what they're doing is required by law. Some of what they're doing is required through their rules. But generally, the inspectors are overregulating. They're creating burden and expenses that are unnecessary for our startups. And this is one people use my own. Which, which again, is funny because like, you know, the people who created and are overseeing this program would claim that they're so pro-business. Right. It's like, well... Not if you're over-regulating and just like thinking of ways that people can spend money. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of crazy. Again, 
there's this one example from the article where they, you know, somebody gave the example where they've just had to add, add like extra cameras, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you have to understand like that incurs cost for the camera installation, ongoing maintenance, data storage, like it's another camera source. And I'm pretty sure there's, I could be wrong, but I remember looking through the law and there are like very specific specs about camera installation. Like it must be 720p or something like that. You know, it's got to be high def. It can't be like the Pentagon cameras on 9-11. Wow. I probably am going to get this episode flagged. Okay. So, um, uh, so the, thing that I thought was interesting that somebody brought up about inconsistency is they're like, yeah, I mean, it happens to everybody and it's all inconsistent. I mean, Cole, you've pointed out some things like the inconsistency the state has shown with outdoor grows. It's honestly baffling. I think GTI or one of them is suing the state to try and keep their outdoor grow. What the fuck is this? That's actually what they said. Uh, How does the state allow this? Shouldn't they be able to shut them down and say, no, you're done growing and selling anything? Um, this is the quote that I really thought stood out. I guess my whole thing is the reason I'm not pushing for more is I've just seen the ineffectiveness of the advocacy work of the social equity community. The fact is we can scream as loud as we want, but it doesn't mean we'll get what we want unless the big players want it because it benefits them. So. Any thoughts on that, Phil, before I move on to size discrepancies? I mean, yeah, that's just, that's the dynamic, right? Like that's most of the legislation that's, that would describe most of the legislation we've seen since 2019. Like if it passes, it it's because it benefits the big operators in some way. Right. You could think of probably this. like a, you could, you could think of probably like a couple exceptions to that. I don't know them off the top of my head. <laughs> Right. I don't know. Somebody could maybe try to argue like the transportation moratorium, like how does that benefit them? I don't know, but probably somehow it does. <laughs> you know? Yeah, maybe. I was just trying to think of something to your point to like try to poke a hole. Well, in that, but, but right. Like they have a, there's a moratorium. They already got transportation licenses. The transport people didn't get any kind of like uh requirement to contract with third party you know there was no like sacrifice on the operators the big operators part and you know what i heard about that actually it came up out of thank you so much for bringing that up this is not covered in the article either so um somebody kind of made it more clear to me because i talk about you know we talk about all the different license types people might have and um they were talking about that how you know the transportation licenses it's like why didn't they make it required to work with a transportation person and in fact i didn't know this and maybe i could try to seek some clarity from the state but i don't think the original licensees have transportation licenses now they still have to re- comply as we've seen with that report that we watch all the time they have to pretty much comply with the same standards but i don't think like they actually have a transportation is a license is the ability to transport it just like inherent in having one a of these super other license? licenses maybe. maybe or a do a craft does a craft grower need a transport license i don't know i'll have to ask i think yes but i don't know i'll have to ask some of the people that are actually i thought selling. i heard i thought i heard at least one of the craft grower licenses talking about how they you know, they specifically applied for like a transport license because they wanted to be like vertically integrated or whatever. Mm. Like they applied for like a 
transport dispensary craft grow. Right. Yeah. I feel like you would need one. And I feel like that's what their point was in bringing it up, actually, to bring it around. Uh, yeah, I mean, you would have thought that the big operators would have gotten them, like applied right. for one. But I don't think... I think they fall under a different set of rules, like, somehow. with the, They probably follow... You know what I mean? Like, there's probably something spelled out in the Medical Cannabis Compassionate Program that says how you have to transport it. Like, the, yeah, you, like... Yeah. That just makes it kind of inherent to having that license. Right. Because before it was like, well, of course you can transport your product. But now it's like they've created a whole new license type. So. So, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Kind of, I think it was, yeah, to put it more finely before we move on, I think it was just like a, a condition of having that license back in the day. And maybe those conditions haven't really changed, which is pretty nice. I mean, what they them. should really do is just let these transport people have like like let them get warehouses and like keep their own supply and be like delivery distributor type thing. And actually, uh, while we're like, talking, that would be the best, that would be the best way to save all those people who would like bought vehicles and all this shit mm -hmm. you would think. Yeah. And I think it's episode 53 of the Cole memo. Just a quick plug. We talk about that exact idea with a transporter and, they have that on their mind. They want to do like distribution hubs. Um, right. And and it's not only for reasons of making their like what you just said, but also because of the logistics of transport in the state of Illinois. Oh, right. Yeah. It's such a big state. So if you had some sort of central distribution center that can kind of like get to both <laughs> ends, then it's like cool. Well, because you have to make the delivery like in a in, day essentially in a day. yeah yeah because otherwise like, you'd have to have like someone drive up for eight hours stay overnight and come back or something and i think that's kind of the other idea with this distribution center is that if in if there's a scenario where you kind of get caught in traffic or something you could go to a distribution center and, and like store your wares for the night in compliance with the law <laughs> so mm -hmm. that you know the transportation happens during business hours, I guess, um, is the point. So, um, so yeah, thanks for bringing that up, dude. Cause didn't even, you know, that wasn't really even a part of, it just came up through the Well, and transportation licenses, like as a thing, like, uh, say taking stuff from the grow to the processing place, the processing place to the dispensary, like that's not a license everywhere. Right. I don't know. Like, I thought I remembered you talking with uh, Mike Malcolm about that at some point, like how they do it in California. Yeah. Well, and then like Portia talked about it. Like she just drove her stuff. That's why she calls her company legit trapping because she would just put it in her car and drive it. She didn't right. need a license. Right, right, right. So. Yeah. Well, and I in Vegas, that... you remember we learned, I think we both talked about seeing a piece on Vice where in Vegas. Oh, yeah. Vegas liquor, does. Yeah. Yeah, the liquor distributors somehow like weaseled their way in so that they have to like, ch like they are the transporters, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? So um, anyways, this next section, I think yeah, it'd, is... be, it'd be interesting to talk about how that's done in other states sometime. Yeah. Well, and like, I think that's like a, a portion of these markets that like people don't think about as much. Right. Well, and it, like typically it seems like 
Yeah, like it just depends. Like you say, that would be a good topic to dig into because like sometimes there are transportation licenses, but it's for like things like home delivery. Delivery, Like Massachusetts has like home delivery licenses. I don't know that they have like point to point like transport licenses. Well, and so, I know so. like, like say like in Michigan, I'm pretty sure that when they were doing licensing, they specifically didn't make a transportation license. Mm. But there is like secure transport as a business in Michigan, you know, like people that you hire to pick up your money or your weed or things. Yeah. Because people, because people do get robbed. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So um, let's talk about the discrepancy in size between canopy spaces, because this is actually something that came up and I don't know that this is a huge section. I just thought it was interesting to hear that this was even a part of what they're thinking about. Um, for the first time I'm hearing chatter from craft growers that suggest they're looking to increase their flowering canopy size past 14,000 square feet. It's something that I've suggested to craft growers in the past. And they were like, well, we don't want to dilute the value of our license. I'm like, but is it like what? So, um, some people have told me, like, how do we put ourselves in the best position where investors can say, hey, look, this is a worthy investment. One of the issues that we've heard is our canopy size in comparison to that of the large multi-state operators within the state. The thought is that 5,000 is cool, 14,000 is better, greater than 14,000 is best in comparison to the larger organizations. That's one of, I would say, the frustrations. Um. You know, other I had a few different craft cultivators actually kind of they're saying like I some of them said, yeah, 14,000 is probably maybe 28,000 is good. You know, this one person I spoke to said, I don't know that we need to match the capacity of large organizations, but we do need more. And then um, another person just kind of said, like, I'm of the camp that we're just you just need to take what we have right now. Um. Even the current operators, a lot of them haven't even built out their full canopy that they have available over the last eight years. They're in the process. Some have just finished out, but they're just like, let's not even talk about this right now. You know? So what do you, any thoughts on size? I mean, it seems like you should have more than just this one license, you know? Right. Don't like again I, as an example over in Michigan, there's different classes of licenses and you can stack yeah, them. That's what I was So, say. you know, you have like the micro business, which is like a hundred, I think it's still a hundred plants or less. And I don't know if those stores have been allowed to sell from other producers. They used to have to only sell their stuff. I think they might have been able to start bringing in other people's stuff because it was like hard to make that model work. But then there's like the next step up, and that's, you know maybe a couple thousand plants and you can like stack multiple of those. And then there's like, there's like three or four different license categories. I feel like and that's what I, I mean. I feel like Illinois should, you know, it's like you should be able to have as much flowering capacity as you need. Right. Like whether it's however much you need to attract funding or, you know, if you want to keep it super small and have some tiny boutique grow that you think you can make work. But again, though, it's – see, it's the idea that you'd think that, but some growers have the attitude and even the government seems to have the attitude that 
based on market need. What does that mean? Yeah, I've never understood that. So it's the idea that you and it and, and it realized that the context of what I just brought up says the Department of Agriculture may authorize an increase or decrease based on market need. Now, this is by rule, so these rules are actually being defined right now. So it would be interesting to see how they define that. But I'm just saying whenever I've talked to anybody about anything like this from state government, one of their concerns is price compression. I think that's what they mean by market need. They're just so – they're so mixed up. They don't know what the fuck they're doing because <laughs> like if you're really trying to bring people into the market, you need to stop them buying weed other places. Yeah. You're never going to do that by trying to project what demand is. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. And like, look where we are. Like, four, four, this is the fifth year of rack. Mm -hmm. I mean. <laughs> and again, just briefly, Phil, do you agree with, you know, I know that you you don't frequent dispensaries and I don't either in Illinois, but just anecdotally would you agree that in the four or five years or whatever it's not changed like from a consumer perspective it doesn't feel different it doesn't feel better yeah it's not any more appealing to me now than it was in january of 2020 <laughs> yeah so like prices have come down oh yeah especially Absolutely. if you're buying from like one of these larger operators that's vertically integrated you know like you can find I think I've seen a hundred dollar ounce at certain places, you know? Um, but it's, it's not like that's super prevalent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't remember if it was, I'm looking, I swear I saw a box Brown comic recently where they kind of talked about that, where like in New York, there was a bunch of unlicensed dispensaries. So their idea was like, let's just start giving out so many licenses that like, you're not even going to want to go into an unlicensed one. Like you're going to want, you know what I mean? thought it was an interesting idea, but I can't find well, it. Well, yeah. I mean, look at all the smoke shops that are selling like farm bill, farm bill compliant products in Illinois. It's the same mm -hmm. thing. It's like you guys aren't satisfying the demand with your little cute regulated market. So people are going elsewhere. <laughs> like, right. And they're availing themselves of options that are perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I've ordered, I've ordered hemp from another state, you know, high THCA hemp. Yeah. That was legal as far as I'm aware. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting ads now. I want to put it out. I tweeted it, but let's both put it out there. We keep talking about it. Well, before. and that should, that should like freak the state out into like getting their shit together. Right. You You're think. seeing like all these you know, how is some infusion company that's selling edibles for like $30 for 100 milligrams in some dispensary going to be a viable option at all once people realize you can just order this stuff offline? But see, that's and the it's thing. The same stuff. <laughs> to going back, I guess, to bring it back to this, you know, and we talk about that idea of canopy size, like their solution to that, Phil, is not add more to 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 actually solve the problem. They like patch the problem. So they're trying to make it at least the last read I heard so that, yeah, if THCA is all included, like they're making it so that only the licensed 
people can do that. So they're like you'd say, you'd think the answer would be to do what you're talking about, but their answer is to outlaw it and to make it so that like it it is only just these people, you know? I don't know if that's is that gonna be possible? There I, I would imagine the hemp lobby has enough money to shoot that down. To your point, most states that have tried to do this have had difficulties, but I don't know. There's a lot. This is well. This I think Silicon there were, Valley because we we heard um, we heard Aaron Johnson, the cannabis regulator, at that fireside chat. She talked about those other cases, and she was saying like, "Well, those were defeated for like this reason and this reason." She was like, "We'd be a little smarter about it, and we'd be able." Right. So I think they. Like if they wanted to, they could do it. I was just thinking like, you know, you're seeing all this, like these ads on Instagram and stuff. Like you'd imagine there's a decent amount of money in, uh, in hemp products being sold in the state and that those people would be lobbying to keep it that way. Yeah. Oh, and they absolutely are. And I think that's why you'll see in the, just bringing up Canada equity again, like in the alliances proposals, you see regulate, not prohibition, of uh, Delta-8 and hemp-derived cannabinoids. And I think that's a direct result of – look, from what I understand, I'm not saying – Well, like, but regulate could still mean bring those under the framework of the CRTA, right? That's a good point. Yeah. Prohibit but, just means like to ban them. True. Yeah, that could be word wordsmithing. Um the impression I got, though, is because they made it very clear that they want it to be accessible for small businesses is the wording they use. And to me, that doesn't compute with <laughs> Illinois cannabis. So I'm like, we got to be changing something if they're saying that. Otherwise, yeah, it's just word, word salad, you know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because what the. The I like. I think the like thing about that is there has to be like a it has to come to a head eventually. Like right. the idea of license caps and this hemp market can't really coexist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's got to Like you can, you can either have everyone's able to sell this stuff. It's not hard to get a license, but like you still have the whole, like, cause like the smoke shop selling all these hemp products, it's like, they don't have any of the security requirements and stuff. So it's mm -hmm. like, you would either have to do away with those or these people would have to be paying like, I don't I don't know how they make it work. <laughs> That's what it all comes down to is that they just everybody doesn't like like you say it just doesn't seem fair because of all the crazy rule. So like they're I say fair, I don't I don't think that's Anyways, they're going to bring up like well, we had to go through all these hoops and then you're just going to come come in and sell it out of a storefront and it's like, well yeah, maybe all the hoops you had to jump through were stupid. You know, but they don't well, like to hear like that. That this is the them. discussion we this is the discussion we'd love to see right right yeah like the current system is stupid and it's a good thing that the hemp market is making a challenge to it yeah and before we get back to this it is funny to hear like you remember when i had attorneys on the show and he's like why are we doing any of this when he when i informed defense attorney bruno about hemp because he wasn't really in the loop about it and then when he realized like all the holes it pokes in this crta he's like why the fuck are we even doing this so yeah, it, it does challenge the system directly, and that's exactly why it's gets so much airtime. You know what I mean? That's um, why it's fun. That's why it's fun. This is fun, Phil. We talk about this all the time. Go along to get along. 
Several craft growers tell me that they feel in this arena, there seems to be an unspoken expectation or requirement to align with the larger multi-state operators to facilitate legislative progress. Some took a measured approach with this, indicating that they'd rather work together with the large companies than against them. Other craft growers describe the hidden costs that are required to get things done in Springfield. The hidden costs are the plated dinners, hiring specific lobbyists, some of which in my research I've learned uh, previously served as uh, elected officials in Springfield. Um, campaign contributions. That's not a unique thing, by the way. Lob elected officials becoming lobbyists. I just wanted to say that. Uh, campaign contributions that are required to get the ear of representatives with authority and influence. Two very important things. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Basically, they identify being in alignment with the MSOs is a huge challenge. And, and basically, hand in hand with that, it's like those representatives that have the authority and influence um, and that are like the cannabis reps, they are getting big cannabis money, as we've discussed um, in many episodes. And if you want to learn about it, you can go to thecolememo.com slash history if you'd like to see some of those representatives that get big cannabis money um so yeah it's always it's always struck me as interesting like you know because like the idea of organizing a boycott against large producers or things like that um, like people who lobby and control the market against the interests of social equity it's you've just never seen anybody really advocate for that and i think part of that is because like these guys just like literally call the shots <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you're making enemies with them like you're not going to be very successful yeah at least if you're like trying to get into the business right right you gotta go along to get along yep and that like I say it's just the two layers it's interesting how they relate though you gotta be in alignment with the MSOs but what that also means is that like yeah that means that the representatives you speak to are on the same page as those companies. And I say the MSOs collectively, folks, it's important to understand that what I mean by that is the established operators, most of which are multi-state operators. There are new craft cultivators, though, that are MSOs, and we'll talk about that at the close of the show. Um, well, so, and we're talking about like the Cannabis Business Association right. of Illinois in particular, and then the, like there are even new craft operators that are part of that organization, but that organization is like dominated by the the big operators because you get like as many votes as you have licenses. Mm -hmm. So obviously like people like Cresco G or GTI is not part of it anymore, but like Cresco would be the biggest voter in that organization. Yeah, exactly. So. So, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to hear people actually talk about that. And once again, there are uh, quotes in here, um, you know, and I, again, I tried to be fair. There are some people that said, I'm not one of the folks who bash the multi-state operators. I believe we're a cannabis ecosystem. We have to work with one another. We need one another the same way I believe the larger companies need smaller companies like us. We need them as well. I'm not one of those guys that's like, let's screw those guys. They're the competition. They're the bad guys. I don't believe that. But I do think if the intent of the law, if the intent of the craft grow license is to help minority companies and smaller companies get a foothold in the industry, 
Um, I think I do think the intent of the law. Sorry. So, I mean, it's interesting. Um, any thoughts before we breeze through fire sale? The last two topics: fire sale and craft growers concerning their licenses are losing value. Mm, nope. Sweet. Well, I heard about a fire sale, and what what I mean by that is, uh, well, let me use the direct quote. And I've heard about this from multiple sources. So, but this is a direct quote that uh, I liked. So, what they chose to do was sell it in. Expensively or sell at what I consider a fire sale, you know, less than a million dollars or a million five. I guess that's, I don't know. Uh, I forgot what the numbers were, but these licenses are worth more than that, they say. So, um, and, and I just, interesting context, I add an asterisk here. This whole this whole thing, I've been working on this for you know a couple of weeks now, talking to different craft license, licensees. And some of these, fire sales have happened like i guess relatively recent and they were all kind of worried about these looming deadlines well from what i understand according to a recent report from illinois news joint these deadlines were recently extended to create a final universal deadline i put that in quotes because that's exactly what it's called but i also don't know what that means i have to i have to believe that that's what it what it means is that everybody has the same end deadline but I just can't help but wonder how those who rush to sell their licenses due to what appeared to be impending deadlines feel about these extensions. I mean, it sounds like maybe they are already weren't in the best spot anyways, but if they're like, fuck, because like their worry was to be more clear real quick, Phil, is uh, they didn't want the state to just take the fucking license because they I guess they can oh, do right. that, you know, so they yeah, wanted to the, sell it because that's in it. the. CRTA. It's like if you get one of these licenses and you're not operational by a certain point in time, they can take it back and give it to someone else. Yeah. But I was just wondering, like someone who might have sold at a low price because of some deadline that was coming up just to have the state change. It's like, can you sue the state for that lost money? <laughs> oh, I guess. How, how would you prove it was worth more? Right. Yeah. Be interesting. But uh you know, this compounds into the whole thing, which this actually some craft growers did not want me to include this part of the story. They asked me not to include this as part of the story. But, folks, I didn't even really want to do this story in the first place, and then I committed to it. So I'm I'm sharing every part of the story as I heard it. Um, you know, multiple craft growers expressed concerns about the diminishing value of their first round licenses compared to those in round two. And again, some even hesitated to share these concerns, fearing it might further devalue their license. But others urged me to include their thoughts. Um, again, I just wanted to, I went into this and saw a lot of similarities between all their stories. So I was like, let's, there's, there's a story here, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess they were hoping that transparency on this topic would lead to some sort of reckoning where all licenses reattain some sort of promised value. Which I think you texted me when I sent you a draft of this quote, and you're like, that's the problem. I think that's what you said. <laughs> Am I wrong? I, I don't remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, many of the craft cultivators I spoke to did, I, I'll say a few. I don't mean to say many because there was a group that spoke to me and they were kind of blunt and they just said, I don't know who you spoke to. Maybe it's just one person. It was more than one person. 
but they're like, I, they said, I don't think most licensed winners, especially on the craft grower side, are as entitled to feel like there's some promised value for these craft grower licenses that needs to be delivered upon. I don't necessarily believe most of them feel like that. I mean, everybody knows this game is about timing. So this person kind of pushed back um, on what others had to say. So I wanted to include their perspective. So, yeah, sounds like the licenses aren't as uh, valuable as they were. And I want to get back to this section because there's actually some I'm going to add to probably like right now as we're talking because I found out a little bit more information before we went on air. But what does this mean? Phil, what do you think this means? Because I made my thoughts known. What do you think after hearing all of this, all of these different issues, just as a consumer, first of all, I don't know if any consumers are still listening at this point because we tend to get a little into the policy and such. And sometimes consumers don't get to that level. Um, if you're still listening, thank you. Uh, but I'm just curious, like as a consumer, did you find this like was this story interesting to you? I mean, it was interesting to hear about the dynamics of the troubles that they're having and stuff like that. Yeah. And certainly there's stuff that we talked about that I hadn't really thought about, like their ability to be like limitless in scale, just not in what they're growing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, based on what I've heard, it seems like, it seems like everybody was saying that the most social equity centric market in the nation is falling short of what they perceive to be its promises. They feel the golden ticket winners, as I call them, uh, feel that their coveted licenses are losing their luster while others are seeking ways to part while the opportunities still hold value. It seems the theme though, is that most of the people that have had access to capital, the craft cultivators I spoke to, continue to face fewer obstacles on their path to operational success. So like a lot of the craft cultivators told me, and I, I feel like to a certain extent I get what they're saying, although I'm so critical of the system, if the fundamental goal of this program was to empower disproportionately impacted individuals to embark on their entrepreneurial journeys, it appears that the path to success has been marred by daunting regulations, a lack of confidence, and a system that often seems stacked against those it was supposedly intended to uplift. Now, what I mean by that is much different by what a lot of these craft cultivators mean by that because they still believe in license limitations, for example, a lot of them. I don't know if that's fair, but it seems like most that I speak to are very concerned about the idea of you know, wholesale prices going down and all of that stuff. So... um. Yeah, it seems like the the limitations are a feature, not a flaw. <laughs> oh yeah, they keep people out. I was just thinking of saying something and then I just lost it. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> but I don't know. Um, if it comes back up, just cut me off, dude. Because I'm literally just reading some points that that I cover in the article, and I just want to bring this up again. I like to just reiterate that I just cons I just you know I'm a cannabis consumer, not really a business person. It was kind of hard for me to follow along the subject matter. A lot of the business related terminology went right over my head. The funding was a really hard to talk about because I'm just like, why should I care? You know, and to them, it's their money, it's their life. Well, the funding right? is one of the hardest. The funding is one of the like main issues, right? Bingo, bingo. Like getting funding. 
Mm-hmm. But that seems like, like it just seems like it's hard to make one of these licenses functional and that you need to be like a very astute business person to take advantage of it <laughs> or yeah. secure funding or any of that stuff. So it's like, I would just imagine the people who haven't been able to get operational at all or any, or find funding. It's like, they just didn't have the connections or don't know the, you know, like what's the like missing element there that these other people managed to find. Right. Just having the money already. Cause some of them are like from another state mm-hmm. yeah, or it's... having some of them have a little, some of them have ties to like, the larger operators because they came from one of their like social equity incubators. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know what's, you know, how it's going to be interesting though, to see who lasts the test of time. As I've told you in the past, somebody said to me when this whole thing started, I think the watershed moment is going to be when somebody goes out of business, when we first see receivership. Um, that's going to be an interesting time because, of course, the whole point apparently yeah. is to prevent that. Um, well, and you'd imagine someone has to go out of business eventually. Someone's going to fuck up. <laughs> right. Right. So I would think it would probably be one of these dispensaries first. Right. And I actually do have interesting uh, testimony, if you will, regarding the dispensaries that I couldn't really figure out how it would fit into this. So I kind of just added it as an addendum to this. Uh, we'll we'll get back to that subject because I didn't know this about dispensaries, uh, That what this person told me. Maybe you did, but um, I learned something kind of new. So, but like with this whole story, Phil, like one of the things I kept asking the craft cultivators themselves is why should the public care about this? Why should I care about this? Why should the cannabis the average cannabis consumer care about your story right and i'm pretty blunt in this report and i'll be pretty straightforward now i did not hear anything that i considered to be a convincing answer i didn't mention this in my report but you know some people say you know well if you're a cannabis consumer don't want don't you want more access to products and i'm like i'm not talking about like sure but like that's what I'm getting at, and this is kind of how I closed the article, uh, I've maintained the only way to rectify the injustices of the drug war is to – and to prevent further injustices is to just put it into the war on drugs altogether. And at least in the context of cannabis, what that would entail is repealing the Cannabis Control Act of 1978. I'm always going to bring it up. I know it didn't. It's like, I think everybody reads my articles. Like, they're like, how is he going to bring up the Cannabis Control Act of 1978? <laughs> because I'm going to. I mean, well, that would be real legalization, right? Correct. Or real decriminalization. At least real decriminalization. I think that's what I think is the goal. Uh, that's what I consider to be meaningful cannabis reform. Um, so. I actually added this, Phil. I don't know if you saw this, but I decided to add a suggestion because some of the craft cultivators turned it around on me. Well, Cole, you're the one doing the story. How do you make your audience care about it? I can't do that with your story. But if you want people to care about what you have to say in the future, I think if your goal is to garner support and foster a sense of community, you should provide the public with compelling reasons to stand behind you. 
What does that mean? One suggestion that I have provided, and I'll do it again, is pair your proposals with industry improvements. So anything you want, also pair that with an initiative that might directly benefit the community. If you want me to call my representative, give me a reason to. Go to a dispensary. Well, if you well, we, just wrote, we saw that we saw that recently with um the new like I don't know who the groups call themselves together, but like Cannabis Equity Illinois, Chicago Normal, like increasing plant count for medical patients is like part of their ask now. Yep. So like could say they are taking the advice. <laughs> I I hope. And I'd like to I'd like to talk about that. Um, that actually, that's the example that I that I use. An example would be to link discussions about canopy expansion, for example, if that's what you want, uh, with the idea of expanding home grow rights for medical patients and perhaps all adults. Now, as Phil just said, right now there's a conversation about medical patients, and you know, some people have directly asked me because I've shared that proposal that you just referred to, and the first question I always get. And it's the question I asked, Phil, you saw me ask it. Let's just talk about how that went down, how I feel that went down. First of all, we were in a Chicago normal meeting, which is a part of the Cannabis Equity Alliance group. And they opened the floor for discussion. And I asked exactly what I have here. Basically, hey, if you're wanting to get us, if you want to get some energy, and if you want what you want, give me what Give us what we want and we'll support you, the community. That's what I mean us by us. And I led with Home Grow for All and they were very candid with the fact that they don't believe that that is digestible, like it's going to happen basically, which is hard to hear. But you know what? I appreciate the honesty. Just have to say, I hate it when people well, beat yeah, around the just, bush and they don't even consider it. being realistic, right? Yeah, they were being realistic. And to your credit, you followed up my point, and you said, okay, if, if you can't get that, and I'm so glad you were there, Phil, if you can't get that, could you maybe consider expanding the number of plant count? And I was like, that is a great fucking idea. And I was just waiting, waiting, and they were like, yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about that. Now, and then we haven't come up with the number or anything. It's just an idea. It's just an well, idea and, that well, we're I talking also, about, but I it's also great. Asked if, I also asked if they thought it'd all be realistic to like allow medical patients to grow outside yes like in the yard or to let a caregiver grow for you like if like because a lot of people live in apartments or things where they can't mm -hmm. grow even like in my house i just have limited space so i don't have a grow right but they said that increasing plant count for medical patients was the most digestible and like realistic improvement <laughs> <laughs> that they yeah. can see it getting accomplished. And I think the idea behind it is maybe we just change the number and those types of changes are easy. Just like scratch it out and change it, you know? Um, so again, I think that's a sign of maybe, maybe the industry realizing that if you want the community to rally around you for industry proposals, you have to give the community something that they want and need frankly need <laughs> we don't just want this it's the it is what i consider to be meaningful reform you know so um well and because you know 
someday you would think there would be home grow for all. I would love to think that if you can get that plant count increased now, that'll just be translated over to those people too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, any other thoughts on that before I we look at the updated list of licensees and what they're doing? craft grow licensees um so i want to make an update here so and i'll make this before i actually publish the article galaxy labs from what i've been able to gather is self-cultivating and has products on shelves um yeah i think i've seen that yeah so i missed them in my first dive on this um we'll get back to these others here though in a second i think i don't even have this one or maybe i just don't have the parent company but i was looking up and i was thinking about it akili parnell has been on our show in the past and i don't know if this is his company i bet you this is his company because his brand is lab 11 and i noticed they have products um but what i believe they are doing is like co-packing kind of like what i've found uh helios labs is uh seems to be doing um so, uh, so yeah, I think those are the two that I missed and it's possible that by the time you watch this or it's even possible that I just missed somebody. And if I did, please contact me um, or comment at the bottom of this article. If you check it out, you can leave a comment at the bottom. Um, but, but yeah, I wanted to share that list of licensees. And if you want to check it out yourself, I, if you click on this link, it takes you to the Illinois Department of Agriculture's website. And apparently this link right here is updated every month. I guess this this data right here is not updated regularly because I found a few different uh, discrepancies, let's just say. Um, I think I just don't think they update this data very often. It's like a Microsoft, some sort of plugin. But if you this, what I've been told, is updated every month. And so it's this spreadsheet. That so here are the original cultivation centers. You can see their medical permit numbers and their adult use permit numbers. So there's a little bit more proof to what you were talking about earlier on like, hey, maybe they grow it under this license, but then like you know what I mean? Well, and if you look at it, it's the same number, right? It just says AU next to it. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know what the deal is there like I, I i have to imagine it's something with biotrack that i bet you when we get down to these craft cultivators they only have this license number but they don't have this one so i bet in biotrack there's just some error message they get and i bet it just doesn't know what to do for lack of better probably words. yeah um so here's where and i bio, get and biotrack is just like a fake company that doesn't <laughs> have right. people answer phones or make improvements or yeah it's just like a server that's running. Somewhere. That's what it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really does. Metric seems a lot similar. I mean, I don't know if you can get a hold of them. I tried to get a hold of them at Benzinga. I didn't because they were there and I didn't hear back. So, but I've also heard that the uh, proposal, as we heard just really quick on metric is still like ongoing. It's still an active purchase or something like that it's going through the procurement like it's not process. oh but they are switching still yeah I, well it, so the CROO didn't comment when we were at uh, the fireside chat uh, which is linked at the bottom of the story if folks want to check out what I'm talking about um, 
what were we just talking about? Oh yeah. The pro- metric. Um, yeah, it was an act of procurement. Actually, that's not even in the article. So there's another bit of, that's just what I remember. They asked her about what the status was and she said she couldn't comment because it's an active procurement, which makes me think it's not final. Because again, that's why when I reported it, I was very, a lot of people, the way they shared it was like, you know, we're switching to metric, but I looked at their press release and it says that they were awarded an intent to, and the reason I oh, like okay. was very clear to use that language because I mean we've all seen Columbia Care like like for example and I know that's a different example doesn't have anything to do with regulatory but like everybody would have told you that Cresco owns Columbia Care right right um, right, right but no that deal fell through years later you know what I mean so it's possible that that could happen and I mean we we've highlighted many issues with metric so hopefully that doesn't happen um, we don't need more issues. Anyways, though, this is where you can find the data. And uh, as you can see, it's pretty straightforward. People with construction. See see how their numbers are? Or it's like the number and then it says CG. Oh, yeah. Good eye. Interesting. That's interesting. So, yeah, I got to imagine that's something to do with the issue. But this is how I got my numbers, folks. So you can see these boxes here, the people with construction approval. That seems to be the first layer. And then, of course, you get operational approval and uh i'm not going to do the count here i think what my count said was that there are 11 craft cultivators based on the pdf on the date that i did that research uh that had operational approval and uh seven have construction approval which is a low number considering that i think I mean, I feel like it was close to 100 were issued. I don't know. Was it like, I feel like the 88 for some reason is in my head, but I feel like there's been more than 88 in total. Yeah, there's quite a few out there. I mean, I guess I'm not going to count them now, but that's... that's Yes, I don't know. That doesn't look like more than 100. Definitely not more than 200. Could be 88. Could be 88. Yeah. I might count after afterwards, but um, anyways, but it looks like it's like what, like 10% or like maybe 15% are operational. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It'd be interesting to, to do that total number compared to what has been issued. And again, I bring up at the end of this, which we've kind of already talked about, but We'll see some of those numbers soon, hopefully, maybe with the disparity and demand study. Like what, how many of these cultivators are actually making sales? And we kind of breezed over it. Um, it looks like this craft cultivator was purchased by Merimed, who I actually recently interviewed the CEO of at Benzinga. Um, so that's how Merimed got into the state, if you all wondered. They got a craft cultivation license. Um they got back into the state, rather. I think they've been in the state in the past because they. whenever I interviewed him, he said, we're bringing back Betty's Eddie's or something like that. So it's like, okay, you've been here before. We're back, baby. Um, but anyways, uh, from what I've been able to gather, there's like two cultivators, or actually, I guess three. We just added Galaxy Labs that are selling their self-cultivated products. Um, 
I'm pretty sure actually Starbuds is white labeling it. So if you're looking for a company that is white labeling, I believe they're just straight up taking weed from other cultivators and putting it in their caviar jars, closing the lid and putting it on the shelf. White labeling. Are you sure? Not sure, but I thought so. I thought they were. I thought they were growing their own. Let's see. They're on. The, they should be on this list. Well, because it would say on the label, right? Yeah, like they're operational. Whatever so, hey, hey, I could be wrong. They are operational. Yeah, I don't think I've seen anything about them white labeling stuff. Yeah. So I, I may modify that. Because um, on the, like, on that, on the, like, BioTrack label, right? It would say, like, grown at this facility. Yeah. I've seen that before. I don't, I don't, that'll be interesting. I've, the bottom line is though, it was interesting <laughs> to kind of find out that it seems like a lot of people talk about white labeling happening in Illinois. And I couldn't find an example of that. I thought I did with Starbuds, but you know, I think it, what it really comes well, down to is people not understanding the difference between white labeling and co-packing. You know what I mean? And licensing agreements. Because somebody would say like, well, right. Vic Mensa is white labeling revolution flower. No, he's got a, or sorry, a rise flower. No, he's got a licensing agreement. Yeah, you might be able to argue that's like a form of white labeling. Fair. Fair. Yeah. But no, I think... Hold on a second. You could. Oh, wait, no, I, I think it's not. Could. It's not white. Wait, it's not white labeling because he's not like, packaging. Arise is well, but like Arise is not selling that same product under a different name, right? I don't know about that. I wouldn't be surprised if they were. Honestly, I don't know about that though. What I was just going to say is what I think. The reason I think it's not white labeling it is because they they like package that in Wellness Group Farms in Anna, Illinois. So while it says Chicago made on it, and I know that that doesn't really matter. I'm just oh, saying okay. that like, I see he, what you're saying. like if he had, like if he had a craft cultivation license and was procuring it from them and then throwing it in his 93 boy bags, that would be white labeling. <laughs> well, then why isn't Helios white labeling? Cause they're still doing it out of someone else's facility. The reason I I would have acted, and I did say that they were white labeling it at first. But when I found out what co-packing meant, and the fact that they have these, I realized that Bloom has co-packing agreements, and Lobo does too. And I was like, oh, they are they are having to meet another brand's standards. You, you get what I'm saying, like, and use their okay. equipment, branding, and likeness, but they're at least getting a cut of it. But isn't it also white labeling because that product is, say, coming from like Cresco? That is absolutely true. Yes. So, like, so it's kind of both in that case. Correct. So, let's actually let's take a moment now to watch this clip because this is the moment where I asked them about their products. Whoops. I don't think I've got sound on. Let me reshare. But to your point, this is going to say what you just said, Phil. This is why I'm playing this. 
wanted to ask is this like your flower and your uh distillate and your products or do you are you guys partnering with people to do that yeah no um we're in phase one of our our uh manufacturing and cultivation facilities so like i said we've had products since since may um we work with a few select you know groups to procure products you know revolution arise you know some of the top groups in the state yeah and um yeah we source product and then you know we formulate it bring it to the market and finish good forms typically focused on like product differentiation and product innovation so like our blunts you know that that was a product that we felt didn't exist in the market so we brought it to market yeah. they're ready to roll you know um, 14 gram uh, old pal of a uh, ground flower that product and then our surf pod disposable product that's very unique and you know the top disposable in the state yeah and the reason I asked that is not to point out that they're sourced but actually to make a point that even when you guys do start to grow, mm -hmm. am I correct in saying that maybe the first few crops, like hopefully they're fucking dank and you're ready to roll, but like every environment's unique. I mean, you could probably speak to this because you've grown in different environments, but uh, like, I'm going to stop that there, but um, yeah, you guys can check out the full thing. I think what, what, what I've learned and what some people brought up to me, because when I originally wrote this article, it was like the idea I was focusing on white labeling and many people made it clear to me that they don't feel they're just white labeling, right? They are co-packing because they're under contract and they right. have to assemble. So that you're right. And I made that exact same point, Phil. And that's why I bring it up because frankly, it goes back to that grown in thing. And that's why I use. Well, and also I think some people might be going out of their way to say like, oh no, this is co-packing, not white labeling because people have some weird hang up about white labeling. Yeah. You know, in cannabis, they might see it as like a negative, like that other person was saying that it's just part, they don't understand that it's just part of the business. Right. I think that so maybe they, in some way they kind of feel the need to be like, no, no, this is a co-packing agreement. And right. like it is, but it's like, it's also white labeled product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. Sourced. Yeah, exactly. From them. So, so, um, and again, the reason I chose to really focus on all those forms is that report that we started with. And this is what we can start to close. Well, because isn't wait, just you know? one more thing about white yeah. labeling. Like, yeah. like the distribution model where you have someone who's like say like Mike Malcolm with like the that Kronja brand out. Uh -huh. Like they don't they pick that weed, right? Like it's selected from farms they like work with. Yes, and that is a like technically that is white labeling, right? Yep, bingo. Yeah, yep. And um, Cresco does it now, as I said, they white label under their brand. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, yeah, it's just part of the business. <laughs> it is just part of the business. I mean, think about it. It's almost like here's well, one how of I... the arguments. One of the arguments against vertical integration is you don't want to force people to focus on all aspects of the business. You know, like you want someone to be the best grower mm. and grow the best weed. And then it's like, maybe the next person is going to be the person who's picking the best weed yeah, and like branding that weed. And then you're going to want someone who's like the salesperson to sell that weed, you know? So like, that's one argument I've heard, like, yeah, you shouldn't be like incentivizing vertical integration because you want people to actually be like specializing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I didn't really think about that. 
like you want them to focus like focus on the the task at hand instead of being like sporadic with all of those different things mm -hmm. yeah well and i mean you know some people would just you know they want to have a little storefront and grow eden back and sell it in the front yeah yeah that's interesting so again i it's it is interesting that was one of the other topics that craft growers it was like there's two sides of the fence some of them really wanted to talk about it because they feel that it's as they said uh, bullshit that they feel forced to pivot their business they got in the business to grow they didn't get into the business to white label or copac uh, others push back you know and say white labeling and copacking is uh is the cannabis industry um you know that sure you could be a one man band but for the most part you know long standing markets show that that's going to be a part of the market um i will just say that just like the topic of devaluation this entire topic craft cultivators some wanted us to really wanted me to really talk about it some of them didn't really want me to talk about it at all and uh my thing is it just needs to be talked talked about and i'm glad that i could kind of come to a better understanding even though these terms don't I want to be clear with you. Like I, I feel like there are overlaps between these terms. You know what I mean? And I was even oh, saying, for sure, it then. Yeah. you know what I mean? I'm like, but you're still, I kept saying you're still white labeling it. They're like, but we're not, <laughs> we're not white labeling it, you know? So um, some of the people that are taught, like, cause again, it's not only from what I've been able to gather, it's not only uh, cloud 11 and Helios labs that are doing this co-packing. Many of them, Basically, all of them that I spoke to are figuring out how they're going to do this. They feel they feel obliged. We 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 are not craft growers right now. We are manufacturers, and we'll grow in the future, maybe. <laughs> so, um, hopefully. So, well, again, there's more to this, folks. I just tried to give you kind of the. Uh, what I've considered to be the highlights and add some anecdotes. Any other thoughts on this, Phil, before we get out of here? No. Yeah. I just, it'll be interesting to see the future, man. I, you know, I, uh, just, it uh, is... some craft producers start selling, start selling your eighths on the medical side for $30. <laughs> yeah. And I'll give it, and I'll give it a try. <laughs> Yeah, sell it on $30 and put on your label something about, you know, home grow and how it needs to be legal and I will buy your product. <laughs> Try it out. I'll support it. I'll make it a sponsor. Brought to you by anyways. Uh cool man. Well, thank you for talking to me about this again as I mentioned, uh there's much more to the article and there's even a few quotes that I snuck in at the end of the article that if you guys want to check out um, one, I found interesting that I don't, I didn't dig into, but it's a bit of breadcrumb maybe for others to dig into. You know how there's a limit of 10 stores per person or entity. Some have found ways to get around that and now control like 20 to 30 stores in this state. Huh? What? So maybe not, maybe not, you know, again, I haven't digged in, dug into this, and we're talking to people that are. You know, that's another thing you have to understand about these quotes. These people are upset, frustrated, and stuff. Um, but this is one of the things that was mentioned, and I asked for a little clarification, and they're like, "Yeah, I mean, look at it." And they kind of ran through a few things, and I'm like, "Hey, you know, 
it, it, I don't know. I guess what I'll just say to that is it's kind of, I included it in the beginning of my article. It was part of my article before I even talked to any of these people. It's just that from a consumer's perspective, yeah, go to any dispensary. It's all the same stuff. You're not going to go to a dispensary and be like, whoa, you have, holy crap. I've never seen this before. You know, just, there's like some variants. Yeah. Sure. But, you know, and I would say like, especially with this new craft stuff, you're only going to see that at a smaller right. number of shops probably. But yeah, uh, the only, my only like guess as to what that's a reference to is like dispensary 33 and the owners of that. Cause like, I know they got like 20 something licenses in those lotteries, like companies affiliated with them. They were all like app that applied under the name, like green and something. Interesting. Hmm. I mean, it was like one of the big stories when the first like, uh, lottery or like stuff came out yeah i'll have to dig into that i want to say it was 21 licenses but i'm not sure yeah so um a lot of interesting stuff and i hope that you all found it some sort of interest in it like it was this was one of the harder stories for me because and i it was i had to ask for forgiveness sometimes phil because i was a little blunt like Hey, can you, can you say that back to me? Cause I just, I'm trying to figure out why we should care. <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? And, and then like just some of the things they said, like the whole perceived value, it was hard for me not to be blunt about what I felt like. And, you know, I will say that as has been made clear through this show, in some cases, like not, not every craft cultivator agrees with the idea of like, you know, that there needs to be an expansion of home grow rights, for example. Um, they don't believe that they need the community's support like that. And that's okay. We can disagree. Um, but that's what I believe you need if you want to get anything done in Illinois. If you're not going to participate in the plated dinners and uh, buy the right lobbyists and pay the right people, I think that one of the main reasons we got the CRTA was not just the big money behind it. That was a huge thing, certainly, as we've pointed out at thecolememo.com slash history. Money was huge in it. But I would also say that the community was very involved. It was at a time where like people were like, ah, I'm going to vote for J.B. Pritzker because he's going to get me legal weed. I've heard so many people say that. They didn't know what it meant, but they wanted legal weed. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's like what it's like. People wanted legal weed. Now they've gotten it to some extent. And so that kind of deflates the whole, like you need people to want more. Right. <laughs> they need to want more so we can get more. Yeah. And I think people do want more. Like people want a better cannabis market. I just don't think every, you know, it's the rare person who feels compelled to like contact a legislator about any of this. Yes. And actually it was a point I was going to make earlier I'll just say it really quickly. It's like if you go to any dispensary and talk to any patron there, somebody who's purchasing, they are probably not aware of the fact that, first of all, craft license, uh, craft licensee is even a thing that you're locked to 14,000 square feet. Any of these issues that you're dealing with, I urge you licensees, if you're listening right now, like go to a dispensary and ask a, like any consumer. They're not going to know 
what they're talking about. So if you want like support, you have to like, that's why I say pair it with something that people are going to care about. You know, you could put flyers up in the dispensary. Do you want home grow rights? It would also help with, I don't know, something like that. It, we could also have more products. I mean, even something shelves. so, even something so basic as being able to like return a product. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Like to take it back into a shop and be like, this is defective. Look at this. Mm-hmm. And not have people like freak out and try to kick you out of the place. Yeah. Act like you're walking through TSA with a firearm, which is what it feels like if you walk back into a dispensary with a product. Like they're like, whoa, you've mm-hmm. opened a product? Like that is not allowed in here. Get the fuck out of here. You know, like last yeah. time I went to a cure leaf in the state, I had a vape in my pocket. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I was I, like walking in. I was like, oh, uh-oh. Uh, oh, whatever. <laughs> see, I actually, that's how I got in trouble with that and first learned about that whole silly law was I am very particular about my vapes. I like, I just like the C-cell vapes. I hate it. I Sometimes I hate like the other style of vapes. They just clog and stuff like that. And I just have found consistency with the C-cell ones. And so when I first became a patient, I was like, they were out of the cartridges that I liked and they had other ones, but I was like, hold on, are they C-cell cartridges? And the person had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. They're like, what do you mean C-cell? And so I brought the cartridge out of my pocket and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And like, that's when I, <laughs> I like first learned that that was a big deal. That's so funny. You know? And I was like, whoa, whoa, what did I do? Like, you know, was that like, like put before, that away. was that like before 2020? Correct. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Put that away. Yeah, yeah. Put it away. <laughs> so that's serious. Well, they're you know because they're part of that freakout is that they're being monitored twenty four seven. You know, correct. It's like, I'm sure they would love to be a little more chill about it, but like being a little performative about how inappropriate it is is probably part of their requirement. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, well, dude, thanks for uh, chopping it up with me. It's it's just about 420. Um, so cheers to that. And uh, yeah, I don't really have any other thoughts on this. Um, that Those were my suggestions, though. If you want support from the community, that's how I think you get them. I think right now you're dealing with an issue of apathy. As all the craft. Well, and even even stuff like uh, being able to smell product and, you know, like having like outlines of regulations and how people can have like open product on the counter for people to inspect or things like that. Right. Right. Like basic improvements for consumers, you know, which we, you know, like medical patients being able to buy at all dispensaries would be a great change. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. So yeah, there's many different options you could pair your proposals with or giving them out for free here on the Cole memo. Um, So, all right. Well, Phil, uh, thank you again and cheers to everybody. I hope you found value in this episode. Sparking up another one as I close it out. Cheers.